This is a worldwide hello to everyone out there. What is up? Welcome to Sound and Strain with Ryan Cano, and I am your host, Ryan Cano. Hope your week last week was awesome. I am back now. Of course, the show is a day late, but hey, I'm here. Tomorrow is Halloween, and I'm excited for the weekend, so let's get into it. So you know I took last week off for a medical procedure, uh, a colonoscopy to be exact. Uh, I typically record and edit the episode on Wednesday or Thursday, and last week I was operated on Wednesday. So I mentioned on the previous show that I have Crohn's disease, and well, part of keeping healthy is to receive a colonoscopy. If you have not had one before, let me describe the process to you. And listen, it may be a bit quote-unquote gross, but you know, hopefully you're not eating right now, but there's almost no way to discuss the issues around getting a colonoscopy in your bowels or your colon. That's just how it has to go. So yeah, colonoscopy. Uh, before you go into the operating room, they have you do a bowel prep. Basically, you are giving yourself a fucking enema. And as shitty as the prep can be, uh, to be honest, the experience is really not much worse than any other loose stool, BM, or explosive diarrhea situation. And my prep was a two-step prep. I tend to prefer this prescription prep as opposed to the over-the-counter prep, which is like five or six steps or something. It just prolongs the shittiness. Yep. But thanks, drummer. And anyways, two-step prep. You start this a day before surgery and the day before prep starts you move to a very low fiber or low bulk food diet and then you transition into a liquid diet so basically the day before your the day before your prep you're doing water jello sprite uh, plain black coffee or Gatorade no color reds nothing with dyes in them so you then take the prep about about 12 hours before you're gonna check in uh, for the surgery so yeah you take the prep and I'm not going to lie and say it tastes great it does not in fact it'll kind of make you shiver and do a weird dance when you drink it it's fucking gross and part of your body just wants to puke that shit up but you know you drink it slowly or, or you just do it in kind of some varying big gulps which is kind of what I did and you take about 30 minutes to finish and then in that same container you just drank that prep from you fill it up with water again so you get all that residual prep as well and you're giving yourself more to get out uh, so yeah, you refill that shit up with water and now you got a belly full of it and you got a belly full of bowel prep as well. And then the internal faucets just get turned on and that brown water flows. And to be frank, you're basically just hardcore shitting off and on for two hours or more. And you know, my prep started at 5 p.m. the day before, and I just tried to stay awake through the night for the most part. I hate going to sleep for like 30 minutes or less and then waking up in a panic because I'm about to shit my pants if I don't run and sit on the toilet in five seconds or less. So I just stay awake and I binge some TV shows and I try to ignore how tired I was. The second part of my prep started at 3 a.m. So I just get going on that. I had to check in at the surgery center at 7 a.m. So 3 a.m. to 6.30 a.m. window was just about enough time to get out the second part of the prep. It's totally freaky thing to witness at this stage because the prep is giving you, you know, 
a total explosive shock to your system. It's basically cleaning you out already. That diarrhea you had in the first part of the prep, the second part is just making sure the job got done. And for the most part, it's it's done. You'll likely have a BM that is fully clear liquid, if not clear, but maybe a hint of the color of jello that you're eating. It's just amazing how much undigested food we carry at any given time. So you're totally clean and you're ready for surgery. You feel light as a feather at this stage and your stomach inflammation is all but gone uh, and you also have no warmth at this stage you have no food circulating through your body uh, nothing being burned off for energy and warmth i tend to have to move around a bunch or just wrap myself the fuck up in blankets and try to get cozy before it's time to take off to the surgery center i am a single man who owns a home and lives by myself and i'm also a man who very much prefers to do something on my own and i don't like to overuse favors uh, that's a positive spin some may say that i am just a person who hates to ask for help that's also true too either way i don't care to bother my friends by asking for a ride at 6 30 in the morning during a pandemic where we've been separated from each other just to stay healthy so i call myself a lyft and i don't know i don't really fuck with uber so not that lyft is much better but yeah didn't call an uber i got myself a lyft and this was my first time using rideshare during the pandemic. I'd used Lyft a few times back in February when I was in Chicago interviewing with Groupon. Uh, but anyhow, I got myself a Lyft, took a ride into the surgery center. My ride was nice and clean. Didn't feel like any worries about using it. It was nice and smooth. And I, I was checked in fairly quickly, met the doctors and the anesthesiologist for the day, went over the play-by-play. -play. And at this point, I'm already just tired as fuck. I've been up for almost 24 hours straight and through the night and here I am on an empty as hell stomach waiting to go get my checkup so blood pressure is taken electronic monitor nodes are sticky to your chest and your hand is stuck with tubes so that you can receive intravenous medicine you get rolled into the room where the surgery will take place everyone says hi no one asked this time around but previous times I've been asked what music I want to hear last time I had them play beach house but this time no one asked about music I remember my anesthesiologist standing besides me uh, to make sure that the medicine treats you okay, she said. There was no countdown from 10 to go to sleep. I just remember looking up at the monitor and then just falling asleep. And the procedure, from what I'm told, takes 30 minutes, and then it's another 30 minutes after that before you wake up. So not a ton of time under the gun. That's what is wild about a colonoscopy is that it isn't that long of a procedure at all. It's just a lot of monumental effort to get ready to receive the closer look inside. So that's really the hard part, to be honest is the prep. I wake up in the room after the surgery, get asked how I feel. I decline any drinks or soda. I feel pretty decent this time, not thirsty or anything. I was told they found and removed five polyps. They basically burn them off with a laser and then vacuum them up to be tested. And I've had previous polyps removed and those came back benign. And guess what? All these came back benign too. So I'm super happy about that. I felt good the day of the surgery too. No one seemed overly concerned. So, you know, I didn't really leave concerned or overly worried about it. Last year though, I did have four polyps removed from a colonoscopy surgery. So the fact that I've developed five within a year kind of bothers me, but my gastroenterologist doesn't seem too concerned either and says I don't have to get another colonoscopy for two years. And that's great, especially after a few years of having to get 
one a year, multiple years in a row. After the surgery, I had my homie Neil pick me up. Shout out to Neil, one of the great friends out there. Uh, he is one of the few, if not you know, the only friends I've regularly hung out with during the pandemic. So, and I assume everyone's got like their little pandemic bubble of like buddies that they're kind of social with to keep themselves sane. Uh, anyhow, Neil's one of my best friends and he's been there for times like this to pick me up at the hospital. So shout out to Neil. Thank you for being a good friend. And thank you to all the good friends out there who have picked me up in these situations in the past, like Brian and Steven. Uh, they've been there for me too. Anyhow, uh, you get picked up and you still have a bit of propofol in your system and this is sort of acting as a pain relief for you too but you know you're kind of out of it so um i didn't really feel too sore afterwards i felt a little tender for sure but not really sore uh soreness was more the polyps or like the internal hemorrhoids that precede getting uh the need for getting a colonoscopy so i actually felt pretty good at you know at the end of this i definitely felt a whole lot lighter so you know you're released and you're sent home and you know it's been about 24 hours since you ate a fucking thing so like you just have to get some sustenance i typically eat p terry's just outside the hospital corridor but i don't know what happened this time around we just for some reason just didn't exit that way so we didn't even pass it up and i'm kind of glad i passed on a burger this time around i needed to introduce foods back in lightly so i went to china dragon out here in pflugerville off pecan street and just got some beef and broccoli and i don't know i typically get the chicken and broccoli with that brown sauce and I don't know man but I was just craving I don't know beef for some reason like I kind of wanted a hamburger but I didn't really want fries so I just went for this uh, I guess I was lacking in iron or something like that that's typically how it goes down and I definitely did bleed some in the surgery when those polyps were removed so I, I guess that kind of checks out for that craving anyhow get the food delivered I grub down and then I just lay down for that first sleep in bed after surgery and God damn, I just have to say, it's fucking crazy that Michael Jackson took Propovol to go to sleep at the end of his days. Like, that's fucking nuts. Uh, it's just so crazy to kind of come out of that haze. So yeah, anyways, I, I go grub. I lay down for sleep after the surgery, and that sleep is... I sleep so good, but at the same time, like, I kind of wasn't super comfortable. Like, the meds are wearing off, and you start to feel some pains, and the propofol comes out of your system in sweat, or, you know, at least it does for me. So I tend to wake up with a sweaty head or sweaty legs, even if my AC is set for sleeping comfort, which is, by the way, 71 degrees when it's hot outside. So you get some sleep, and although you'll toss and turn like a motherfucker because just, like, sweats just coming all out of you and like the pain is coming back but I still sleep a little bit. I wake up a bit groggy though and you know I'm feeling good for the most part when I do get up after this nap and I continue binging some TV shows at night and the next day you know I just binge more TV shows while I rested. For the most part I'm physically good. Not about to go do squats at the gym but I feel good. I can walk around the grocery store and come back home all good. So like I said before at first, at the end of the surgery, it's tender, but as of this stage, I feel fine right now. Like I said before, it was tender when I got out of the surgery, but, you know, it was also feeling better and at least, you know, feeling a little bit different than how it was before. I feel fully healed from the surgery at this point and the lab results came back all good, so I really just don't have to worry about this for another two years and two years really was a goal even if i did have to go again next year so what i'll go again next year anyhow i share all this so you won't be scared to get a colonoscopy of your own 
detecting digestive issues or safeguarding against colon cancer, this is your best bet. Here's the bottom line. Colonoscopy testing is highly accurate and colorectal cancer tends to grow slowly. So most experts are going to recommend that people average with, you know, with average risk. And I just mean average. They had a baseline should get a colonoscopy at age 50 and then repeat that exam every 10 years. And if that's if you're an average healthy human. And what I'm starting to hear more now, though, is that for men, they're starting to recommend you get your first one at the age 40. So if you're average hum healthy human, you won't have to get this more than like maybe three, four times in your life. And I've already done that more than I don't know, I've had like eight of them, more than a lifetime's worth. So don't be too proud to take care of yourself. If you get a colonoscopy, the life you might be saving is your own. Since the start of this autoimmune illness journey that all started with discovering Crohn's about eight years ago, I've had at least a colonoscopy a year. I actually skipped a couple years in there from receiving a colonoscopy, so there were years where I received two. So averaging more than one surgery for almost a decade now fucking sucks. And, and it really sucks when I think about how I wouldn't be a recipient for insurance in most of my work situations if this country hadn't changed the bullshit insurance term pre-existing conditions. I'd actually been turned down for insurance in my early 20s, and it was because of pre-existing conditions. And what fucking garbage. Like, being alive before an insurance company knows of you is pre-existing. Straight up. So, thinking of health insurance, my last corporate job that included the whole salary, benefits, and insurance paid was nearly 11 years ago. Since then, I have been self-employed through my own company, the loyalty firm, or even at times unemployed, or at other times a full-time student. So, most of my journey in discovering my autoimmune illness was made possible through the Affordable Care Act, aka the ACA, aka Obamacare. Before the ACA, I was getting my health insurance through HAM, which is the Health Alliance for Austin Musicians, and that's just one of the reasons the city of Austin is so fucking amazing. Uh, anyhow, it's a weird thing to experience these autoimmune disorders and to try to figure them out. And the illnesses I have all take over a decade to reach diagnosis on average. Many reasons for that, with most typical ones being that symptoms are far apart, so it's hard to find a common thread. And also that doctors aren't listening as much as they are trying to finish the day and get to the next patient. But to think it took me over 10 years to find diagnosis to treat my symptoms and for me it's been over eight years since my original diagnosis with my first autoimmune illness which was Crohn's so 10 years of major distracting pains without medicine and then eight years of medicine and surgery since diagnosis like I'm fucking tired and this all takes a fuck ton of work to maintain how my body feels at any given moment is essentially a pain spectrum that never lowers than five on a scale of ten and that's with medicine like that's the best i can feel so when you're in pain all the time you just look for solutions to help stop that pain and Thank God for medical strains that can work in tandem with Western medicines. Balancing that has helped in the pain department so much. It can take a while to learn to stick up for yourself and how to do that within a system of doctors that are you know, that they're forced to play. I was very aggressive in 2011 and 2012 about finding out what was wrong with my body. And it was more than digestion. It was major body pains, dry eyes, dry mouth, 
There was mucus with no moisture, so everything was like really sticky like glue. Just issues all around. I remember going to primary care practitioners, uh, you know, your typical family doctor, and just being ignored like crazy. I would go meet someone and they would all be like, well, I can only meet with you about one issue, not these 14 issues. You'll need to make another appointment for all the rest. And several doctors did this bullshit. You know, a lot of doctors would also say things like, well, you're a young man, you should feel fine. And yeah, no shit. And over and over, I would respond, but I don't. I actually feel like my body is trying to die. I got used to this excuse and maybe even gamesmanship to increase their billings from doctors that I would tell them when I met them that I'm going to tell you what is wrong with me and you're going to need to listen to all that I think is wrong with me. And if you can't, then I need to go to another doctor. And goddamn, did I start to burn through doctors. And eventually I found a great primary care doctor at a community clinic. He listened. He was attentive and honestly gave a shit about me. We basically diagnosed my autoimmune disorders before the specialists even did. We even picked some specialists just sort of knowing that they were going to reconfirm what we had already confirmed ourselves. So many people just fucked around unfocused to be honest. And I remember telling my doctor, his name is you know, Dr. Lee, in that first visit that I have all these things going on and I need you to hear all of them today because I'm starting to think several are related. And that was crucial and he listened. He told me I was a young man who should feel fine and that he was worried because of how terrible I felt. And that's a key distinction other doctors never could make. He likely saved my life. My mental health at this time was near the bottom. My body felt pain all the time with that pain increasing. There was no medicines I was taking yet for this. I had dozens of doctors tell me I'm young and should be fine. It was like medical gaslighting. And you know, you're the expert, you're the doctor, and then eventually your body just overrides that diagnosis. And at this juncture, you're at the beginning of sticking up for yourself as a patient. You just can't take it anymore. They're wrong. I found a primary care practitioner who was so good that I went to several specialists he trusted based upon our suspicions and I got my Crohn's assumption confirmed in 2012. Dr. Lee is amazing because he would listen uh, to my suspected issues and illnesses and we would go investigate them. Over the next few years, I would receive a fibromyalgia diagnosis and then a Sjogren's syndrome diagnosis. So my mental health since then is vastly improved. I wasn't in pain all the time and being told that I shouldn't even feel pain and then internalizing the age-old question, what is wrong with me? I now knew what aspects were going wrong with me. And it sucked have, you know, it sucked having everyone tell you that nothing is wrong, you're fine, you look healthy, and you knew something was just off, that something was wrong, but you weren't sure what. I definitely thought I could very well be just depressed and that my body pains were manifestations of that depression. And, and you know, I went to therapy and eventually I stopped being and feeling depressed. I felt spiritually great, but I still felt physically terrible. I started to eliminate potential threats to my internal well-being. Maybe I was allergic to alcohol, so I stopped drinking. I mean, I wasn't even toking at midnight. I was just living like a saint, and I'd never treated my body so well from the outside, and yet, honestly, just never had ever felt so fucking bad. And my digestion was terrible. I was passing blood every time I sat down. And I mean that 
every single time I sat down to go to the toilet, blood came out. And if I was having a flare-up, I was going to the toilet 35 times a day. And that's no joke, 35 times a day. You know, a baseline of four is like lucky. And for most people, that's going a lot. So just bad times were happening. And when you sit down and have a BM that's all blood for more than a year straight, you're going to stop listening and believing doctors who, you know, are not good enough for your needs. So if you're a super nice and relaxed person, you know, the medical system, it's... Um, it's going to break you and it's going to make you into one of the most aggressively proactive patients they have ever seen. None of this exploration would even be possible if not for the ACA or the removal of so-called pre-existing conditions. I know where I was mentally back then and it's hard to admit it, but I'm not sure I would even be here today if not for the treatments I was able to undergo. No longer did I have pain-inducing debilitation from my autoimmune diseases, but actual medicine to treat them. My daily life started to improve. My tissue started to feel somewhat better. My muscles could feel like they could function again. And I don't want to get into how bad it got before this rebound from treatment, but eight years later, my primary care doctor, Dr. Lee, told me straight up that he thought I might die when he met me. I was 33 years old when he met me, and he thought I was going to fucking die. And at 40... He says I look great. And to be honest, I feel so much better today than I did at 33 or even 27 or even 23. And my illnesses have been with me for a long time, a lot longer than I care to admit. It took a long time to catch diagnosis for all of this. I've been carrying so much pain all the time and I never realized it until it just happened so incrementally that, you know, it became too much and I never noticed as it was happening, increment, you know, incrementally. It was a bit of the lobster in the boiling water feeling. Anyhow, I think that's enough for this for now. I, I definitely feel like I'm in a place where I can finally discuss some of these things publicly and more openly with friends that are curious and, you know, podcast listeners. And at first, I didn't really even feel like I could even talk about it at first. I mean, some of it is ego and it's embarrassment for sure, but a big part of it for me was I really didn't know anything about the diseases. You know, I maybe had heard of them or been aware of them, but, you know, I didn't know anything about Crohn's at all. Well, you're an expert in what it feels like to have Crohn's, but you didn't really feel like you could talk about it much outside of that. And maybe I still can't, but I do have more experience with it and its treatments and things that have worked for me and didn't work for me. So, you know, I'm I'm happy to share what I can and maybe it helps you. And maybe you've been feeling some symptoms and, you know, you hear some of my stories and you think, oh no, maybe I need to check out and see, you know, if I have something that he might have. If you have any questions you'd like to send me about this, I'm happy to try to help. Go to the contact section at soundandstrain.com and shoot me an email. I'll be glad to assist in any way I can. Let's take a quick break. Grab your favorite strain. We'll be right back.
That was Moving Panoramas with Whiskey Fight from their sophomore album, Into, which was released in 2019 on Austin, Texas record label, Modern Outsider. Moving Panoramas are one of Austin's best bands, and their singer Leslie is one of the best voices out there. I could really listen to her sing all day. They're a really great group and I implore you to check them out. When bands start touring again, you have to check out Moving Panoramas as they put on an excellent live show. As always, all music on this podcast is used with permission. Big shout out to Moving Panoramas. Thank you, Leslie, for allowing me to use your awesome music. I promise you guys one of these episodes I will start with Strain Talk. I promise I'm not trying to bury the conversation. It's just how it's worked out so far. So we're going to push it up a little bit this week. The Strain of the Week, y'all, is... Granddaddy Purple. I am getting the scientific info on this strain from wikileaf.com. No, I am not getting paid to endorse that website. Just letting you know about my resources because frankly, I am learning a lot more about these strains too, other than just smoking them. Granddaddy Purple is one of the most popular indica strains on the West Coast and is perhaps the most well-known purple cannabis strain in the U.S., Created back in 2003 by Ken Estes in the San Francisco Bay Area, Ken and his team sought out to create the ultimate indica hybrid by merging two strains with fantastic genetics, Purple Urkel and Big Bud. The products of these two, Granddaddy Purple, is a splitting image of its parents' two best qualities, the deep and dank purple hue from Purple Urkel and the overgrown, dense buds of Big Bud. The dark purple buds blend well with the bright orange hairs and frosted white trichomes that generously cover the bud making it an extremely photogenic strain. This strain is High Times Magazine centerfold worthy. Of course, what strain isn't without drama? Many growers and those working in the dispensary world have claimed that Granddaddy Perps is almost identical to another famous purple strain, Grape Ape. I'm going to go on the record and personally say that they definitely have different tastes. When you see grape in the name, that flavor is usually up top and very grape-like. And when it's purple, that flavor comes on the back end and has a little bit less than grape flavor. It tastes purple. Anyhow, some of the industry will go as far as to speculate that these two strains may in fact be the same. Others simply say that they're just eerily similar in lineage, look, taste, and effects that they are simply confused with one another by growers, dispensaries, and consumers alike. I think the latter is more likely than the former, but there we go. The strain is perfect for nighttime use. Granddaddy Purple hits both the body and mind initially, but quickly fades into a smooth body buzz like most heavy indicas do. Average THC concentration is 18%. For medicinal users, Granddaddy Purple is ideal for pain management. It can also be effective at treating insomnia, depression, and anxiety. Relaxation and euphoric feelings are very common. Novice users beware though. This strain can pack a powerful punch. The recommendation is to start with a hit or two and waiting a few minutes before opting to consume more. Uh, okay, sure. Granddaddy Purple, y'all. Head to your nearest dispensary and pack your bowl right with this tasty indica. Moving on to the movie and TV show review segment called It Could Have Been 15 Minutes Shorter. It's been a while since we reviewed anything, you guys, so let me remind you all. 
and inform my new listeners that the rating is based on a scale of basically five stars and with five stars reserved for the most perfect of perfect films, which means it only needed 15 minutes cut from it. An example of a perfect film? The Big Lebowski. I mean, just a fucking perfect movie. Nearly every scene is memorable. The casting is memorable. It's just an important film. And, you know, you could have shaved 15 minutes off that bitch. So, what did I see this past week or two? Way too fucking much. Way too much TV watching, but it was just that great time for me. I just needed rest, and getting sucked into a film or a badass TV show can really take your mind off recovery. I ended up binge watching a few TV shows. The first binge was on Amazon Prime. It's a TV show called The Boys. It's a pretty incredible concept about superheroes existing in our regular daily lives and the possibility that maybe those superheroes are not necessarily good guys. We get a few people spurned by these superheroes and we see them try to track them down and possibly kill the superheroes that may in fact be supervillains. This show is incredibly dark. The humor is dark, and the show is very violent and over the top. It's pretty fucking badass. There's two seasons so far, and I really enjoyed it. I delayed starting this for a while. My homie Neil was the first to tell me about it. Just take some time to get into a new TV show, and when I do, I usually start something when I'm in sick or needing recovery after a surgery or something. So anyhow, I burned through two seasons there, and from there I moved on to watching Billions on Showtime. Uh, during Prime Day on Amazon, I got myself a two-month trial of Showtime, and I think it was like a dollar for those two months. So I'm just going to get the most of it before I dump it in two months. So I caught up on Billions, which I don't know, I had abandoned that at some point during season two. And, you know, when I had another free trial with, with Showtime at the time. So anyways, Billions is about a hedge fund manager and his place in that world in New York City. The main character is Bobby Axelrod, and he has a performance coach as his right-hand woman helping keep him and his staff mentally focused. So this is a, another great show. Like The Sopranos used a therapist as a crutch to make, you know, the mobster better. There's sort of the same idea for a hedge fund manager here. And that performance coach is named uh, Wendy Rhodes, and her husband is a U.S. district attorney who is investigating financial crimes. And you guessed it, he is investigating Axelrod. So... That's some major friction, you know, that's that's some good TV writing right there. It's a very over-the-top world. It moves pretty fast. It has some very intense aggro trader scenes. Comedians show up throughout the TV, um, throughout the episodes. Uh, comedian Dan Soder has a good reoccurring role here and is featured in many episodes. The main character, Chuck Rhodes, is played by Paul Giamatti. Wendy Rhodes is played by Maggie Siff. And Bobby Axelrod is played by Damian Lewis, who will always be remembered for his role in Band of Brothers. Goddamn, what a show that was. Uh, anyhow, Billions is fun. It's very sopratic. Their season five was halted due to COVID-19, so I gotta wait for the rest of that season, which is coming back next year. And these episodes for sure don't all need to be an hour. I, I can tell you that much for sure, but I understand that they're sort of stuck in that TV structure where they're gonna reach, you know, where they try to repackage and resell the show elsewhere in other, you know, territories across the world. So yeah, they're stuck into that whole time frame. But you could probably cut some stuff down to about 40, 45 minutes and have some killer episodes, not all the same. On HBO Max, which 
by the way, is still a confusing brand to me. Uh, has a show with my girl Anna Kendrick called Love Life. It's a really bittersweet drama on a woman's love life starting from her 20s. And each episode is a person she loved or broke her heart or she broke theirs. And it's all that mess that really just goes into finding your one true love. It's the false starts, the overcommitments, the self-sabotage. And, you know, having a beautiful baby with the wrong life partner. It, it's just a real look into one's characters, one character's journey over time. And, you know, maybe 20 years or so passes in the story here. It's all done super well. Uh, lots of comedians feature here. Uh, Nick Thune is a love interest of Anna Kendrick's character Darby. I also notice Aparna Nasherla as Darby's boss. So lots of Anna and love scenes that showcases her sexiness. It's a very good role that showcases her humor, her wittiness as an actress. It just It's a really good vehicle to showcase just how talented she is. It's a great, you know, it's a great show and it was a great story told. Each episode is 30 to 45 minutes and this comes with a big recommendation. I do have to bitch about it being a quote-unquote max original in fact it it seems like one of the first if not the first max original on hbo max's launch and fuck i kind of missed it it's so goddamn annoying that it's only available on hbo max but not hbo in general like i can only watch this show on my laptop since i don't have an xbox or roku to play this hbo max like what the fuck why is hbo max not available for smart tvs yet i mean this is the same shit that doomed quibi's launch which was limiting the space i can see your media hbo max should be available on smart tvs androids iphones laptops fire tablets etc just anywhere you consume media but the way it is now is a limited experience with the brand and that's trying to separate itself as a premium content provider with more than just hbo and i get the aim but i just hate the limitations um you know let this shit be available everywhere i mean what the fuck hbo max is just confusing for this reason and if they are really diving deep into this name as it seems like they are with max originals they really need to broaden uh the ability to consume it speaking of quibi you knew i was going to report on on this since episode one was all about the confusing and ultimately doomed launch of quibi into the streaming world but hell i even bitched about hbo max in that episode too so this is a little bit of a you know flashback to that episode one but here we go with the update quibi well quibi is calling it quitsby that's right they're calling it quits Damn, y'all. Pick up your drink, light a joint, and pour some of that drink out in the memory of Quibi. The last day of the app's operation is going to be December 1st. Wow. Just wow. Incredible. I mean, Quibi was launched on April 6th. Holy shit. You'll remember in episode one that I thought that content really wasn't the issue at Quibi. The issue was its launch. And I don't mind a narrow focus on what they think their customer will be and what they thought their customer would be doing, but I do mind that they weren't wide with the Quibi experience. I know I've said it before, but not being available across every platform was a gigantic mistake. Pricing was a mistake. Quibi having drama leak to the press harder than the show's received attention was a problem. Timing was a problem. I mean, it's a fucking pandemic. 
the plan now, it just seems, is to sell off the content that they ha have and that they haven't released and try to get a return on the money for their investors. Apparently, they have about $350 million left in their bank accounts uh, to return as well. I think an obvious play is to try to sell the reported 28 movie films that Quibi has in the canon and just sell that to another streaming company like Netflix or Peacock or Amazon Prime or whatever. I think TikTok should buy Quibi straight up. This would make TikTok become a social media entertainment channel. It should broaden TikTok's approach to securing your attention span. Imagine TikTok movies chopped up into bite sizes and allowing it to interact with users and sharing that content within their network. Of course, Quibi calling it Quitsby was going to have drama set to it. A movie was being filmed in Ukraine when Quibi called it quits and I gather financially pulled the plug on them as well. So this film had actors holed up in a hotel awaiting to see if Producers can find a bridge loan to finish the film so it can be sold elsewhere. What a fucking nightmare. <laughs> I mean, my good God. So, yeah, being in the entertainment industry, I had long wondered if I knew someone who worked at Quibi, and after double-checking, in fact, I do. And I want to go ahead and say for the record that I feel bad for all the great people that took the leap to work on this project. A lot of attention is given to the big guns at the top, you know, Katzenberg and Whitman, but, you know, under them were a bunch of well-intended and talented people who took the chance. And in an interview that founder Katzenberg and CEO Whitman gave to Deadline, they are publicly saying they're giving special attention to helping the people land in new places, you know, and, and find new jobs for them. So I hope that is true, but, you know, who the hell knows? Uh, you should check out that interview, though, that Katz and Whitman gave to Deadline. There's just some illuminating things. I came away thinking that Meg Whitman probably does not need to work in entertainment again. She really doesn't quite understand how to apply technology to pretty good content. And I came away thinking she didn't quite understand why the strategies they ignore and wrote off were so fatal. Uh, and of course, you know, Katzenberg said a few things too that really piqued my mind to think that, you know, his pride and ego really haven't allowed him to quite take on what this loss is. Investors apparently have issues too. So, I mean, all around, they got questions. So I doubt we've heard the last of the drama from Quibi. So hopefully Quibi's failure doesn't stop other companies from taking big swings at entertainment in the future. I know a lot of people in Hollywood seem to be worried about that, uh, what this may have done for future investments and future big swings. Um, hopefully people still have guts out there. Well, thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Please leave a five-star review for this show on Apple Podcasts if you haven't yet. Give us a follow or hit the subscribe button wherever you may be listening to this podcast. Please tell a friend and then tell a friend about this pod. Shout out to everyone taking the pandemic seriously still. Please wear your mask. Wearing your mask has proven to be one of the best ways to prevent the spread of COVID-19. You know what else you could do that would stop the spread of COVID-19? Shut the fuck up. Yes, wear a mask and shut the fuck up. Quit talking so goddamn much in public if you don't need to be talking. That's how this is spread. Through your spittle. Shut up. <laughs> and that's it. That's it for this week, guys. Uh, taking us out of the show is Velcro Wolf with 
It's Alive from his album Destroyer of Batteries, which is out now wherever you find music. See you next week, everyone. Blasting.